This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode contains strong language. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Can a mass shooter demand a good death? The Strange Case That Tested the Limits of Justice by Giles Tremlett At 11.09 on the 14th of December 2021, a man wearing a black baseball cap and a long auburn wig rang the bell at the Securitas offices in the Spanish city of Tarragona. It was a poor disguise, and when he entered the reception area on the first floor, staff quickly recognized Marine Eugène Sabot, a burly 45-year-old security guard who had been on sick leave for the previous six months. Securitas is one of the world's biggest security companies, with 345,000 employees worldwide, but this local office was nothing fancy. Grey floor tiles, white laminated furniture, corporate advertising on the walls. We help make your world a safer place, read one slogan. In the cluttered main office, Luisa Rico, a 58-year-old junior manager with cropped silver hair and green eyes, was printing out documents. She recognized Sabor's voice, but was not alarmed that he had dropped by unexpectedly. He sounded calm as he talked to a colleague in the reception area. She did not know that he was carrying a pistol or that he planned to shoot her. Over the next few minutes, Sabor's voice grew louder as an argument broke out. When Rico opened a security door to see what was going on, Sabor was just a few feet from her. He had discarded the wig and was pointing a pistol with a long black silencer into a meeting room. He fired at José Manuel Maestro, the company's provincial manager, who fell to the floor. Then Sabor spun around to face Rico. In the instant before she slammed the door, he pulled the trigger again. A puff of smoke rose from my sleeve, Rico recalled. The pain was terrible. As Rico stared at her arm in disbelief behind the closed door, Another junior manager, Juan Hernández, tried to wrestle the gun away from the shooter. Sabor shot him in the leg. He let three other Securitas employees go, waving them away with his pistol. Then he looked for Rico. Bleeding heavily and still wearing her COVID mask, glasses and green foulard scarf, 
she had crawled into a nook beside some stacked boxes of copy paper in the main office. The only other person in the room, a clerk named Carmen Bonilla, hid under her desk and called the police. A trail of blood gave Rico away. She looked up as Sabor stood over her. He smiled, Rico told me. Then he fired again. The bullet struck her upper thigh, cutting through her bladder and hip. It hurt so badly, I actually wished I would die, she recalled. With that, Sabor was done. He packed his guns and wig into a Securitas carrier bag, placed them inside a sports holdall, and left. As he stepped outside into Plaza Prim, the small public square outside the office, the clock on the building above him showed 11.15 a.m. The shooting spree in a provincial Mediterranean port city of 135,000 people, known mostly for its Roman ruins, in a country with strict gun laws, was almost unimaginable. I thought only gringos did this, said one of many social media commentators, comparing the incident to gun crime in the US. You just don't think it is going to happen in this country, and certainly not in a city like Tarragona, Rico said. As startling as Sabor's crime was, the events that followed were even more extraordinary. Just a few months later, the survivors of Sabor's attack would find themselves arguing for his life to be saved, while Sabor himself sought his own death, in an unprecedented case that will be cited in courts and ethics classes for years to come. A few minutes after Sabor left the office, Plaza Prim was full of sirens and flashing lights as ambulances and police cars rushed to the scene. Rico, who was bleeding internally, was taken to the city's Joan Twenty-Third Hospital, where doctors managed to stabilise her. Hernández's injuries were not life-threatening. Maestro was in a far worse condition, with five bullet wounds in his stomach, hip, neck and shoulder. Just after the shootings, a passerby, hearing screams from the building, had snapped a picture of Sabor's license plate as he drove off in a grey Citroen Zara. Within minutes, his name and number plate were circulating on police radios and soon after on local news websites. On WhatsApp, someone found Sabor's profile picture, a photo of him proudly posing in his Securitas uniform and stamped Wanted on it. It flew from phone to phone, as locals learned of the shooting. Everyone had the same question. What had made Sabor do this? An answer, of sorts, landed in Bonilla's inbox at 12.47pm, as she was being questioned by police. It was a 3,500-word email from Sabor, with the subject line, Happy Holidays, You Thieving Racist Bastards. It was copied to Securitas bosses across Spain including two of his victims, Maestro and Rico. I don't want to kill them, he wrote. I'm not crazy. I have it all perfectly planned. Sabor had worked for Securitas for more than a decade. As a police officer's son from the elegant Romanian city of Sibiu, he had been raised to admire order, honesty and slick self-presentation. He avoided alcohol, cigarettes, even coffee. He was a stickler who lived by the rules and expected others to do the same. Our father taught us that, his older sister Eugenia told me. 
As a young man, Sabo had applied to join the police in Romania, but he was turned down, and in 2003, he emigrated to Spain. At first, he worked in unsteady, poorly paid farm jobs. When he was hired by Securitas in 2009, he was overjoyed. As one of the 200 or so Securitas guards who patrol factories, offices, shops and warehouses in Tarragona province, he would be following in his father's footsteps, upholding law and order. For him, it was the greatest company, Rico said. He was very meticulous and got upset with colleagues who weren't. Eugenia also spoke of her brother's pride in the job. Securitas became part of his identity. He even added its name to his personal email address. The email that reached Bonilla came from this address and showed how far the relationship had soured. I'm so stressed that I am no longer a person, Sabor wrote. The company had mistreated him for the past nine years, he said, and it was time to put a stop to it. Lessons learnt with blood are not quickly forgotten. Securitas will remember me for years. Sabo's relationship with his employers had fallen apart in January 2013, when, after failing to persuade the company that it owed him money, he sued Securitas for allegedly cheating him out of €5,700 in travel and meal allowances, equivalent to half a year's salary. Sabo won the case, only to lose on appeal. My hell started then, he wrote. From that point on, he embarked on a one-man war against the Swedish multinational. He carefully studied a 72-page agreement signed by security companies and trade unions which laid out his rights in minute detail. Armed with this information, over the next eight years, he lodged seven separate complaints alleging abuse of those rights with government labour inspectors who enforce Spanish work regulations, but they found no grounds to sanction the company. In turn, Securitas issued at least two formal reprimands against Sabor, mostly to do with his allegedly overbearing attitude to clients. One of these was later struck out after Sabor challenged it. For Rico, the once dependable Sabor became a nightmare. We could deal with issues like working hours and holidays, but not money, she told me. That was not within her power. Sabo's deluge of complaints were pushed up to the company's regional headquarters in Barcelona. According to Rico, local managers repeatedly told Securitas that they could no longer work with Sabo. But the company did not sack him. Had Securitas done so, it would have been obliged to compensate Sabo with 33 days' pay for each year worked and admit that this was technically an unjustified dismissal. The company worries about its reputation. Rico said. Sabo stayed, and tension built. When Sabo's father died in 2017 while he was on holiday, a Securitas worker said Sabo fought with the company over whether he was owed extra days leave under Spanish law for attending the funeral. In 2019 and 2020, according to Sabo's family, doctors twice signed him off work for stress. I've suffered heart problems, memory loss, vomiting, can't sleep, feel pain in my chest and have passed out several times at home, he wrote in his email. Apart from his job, Sabo had little else in his life. He liked women but was untrusting and did not have a partner. 
he bought two American Staffordshire Terriers, but had to give them away. It broke his heart, but he couldn't care for them properly, said Eugenia's husband, Mugurel Jogan. Sabor's only release was the shooting range. In 2012, he joined the Jordi Tarago Shooting Club, whose dilapidated buildings and potholed car park lie off the road to Tarragona's giant Repsol chemical plant. At the range, Sabor's conduct was exemplary. He won prizes and offered advice to fellow members. Ever the rules man, his only quarrel came when he accused rivals of cheating when working out their scores. Police officers practised alongside him. No one found him suspicious. If we see a Rambo type, they are expelled, club president Xavier Fau told reporters. Sabor was no Rambo, but he was dedicated to his work. On the 12th of May 2021, he chased a shoplifter at Tarragona's Walla Sports Store and tore a tendon. He claimed that the Securitas employee sent to relieve him of his duties did not arrive for three hours, and he then had to drive himself to a doctor. They don't give a shit about my health, he said in his email. He was placed on sick leave. At first, he needed crutches to walk, and the injury lingered on through the year. When I sit down, it feels like I'm being poked with pins, he wrote. Cooped up in his apartment in the nearby town of Alcober, he mulled over his battle with Securitas. He got into a loop, Mugurel told me. In the summer, Sabo's landlord gave him notice that he needed the apartment for his ex-wife, and he agreed to move out as soon as he could find somewhere new. The rejections Sabo received as he looked for a new home piled pressure on an overstressed mind. Still, he cleaned the place thoroughly, ready for a handover. Then, on the 14th of December, he left the rented flat before 10.30am, drove to the Securitas office in Tarragona, and began shooting. That morning, Luisa Rico's daughter, Jashmina, was working at the Medical Emergency Services call centre in Tarragona when she heard about an incident at her mother's office. The family were terrified. We didn't know if he was coming for us too or where he was, said Rico's husband, Jaime Abrio, a retired bricklayer. Police believe that, after leaving the crime scene, Sabor drove to an out-of-town shopping centre, where he parked and spent 45 minutes finishing his email. Shortly after 1pm, he was spotted driving through Reus, a city five miles inland. Three police officers in an unmarked car stopped him at a roundabout. An officer who knew Sabor from the gun club walked towards his car with his pistol raised. Throw away the gun, Eugen, he shouted. Instead, Sabor opened fire, hitting him in the arm. In the ensuing shootout, the police car was struck by three bullets while Sabor's car took five rounds before he sped off. Sabor swung the car onto a farm track 200 metres away, bumped along for a few minutes and pulled up behind a small shed. A neighbour spotted him ducking into bushes. Snipers took up position 150 metres away on the roof of a three-storey farmhouse. Neat rows of almond and olive trees in surrounding fields 
provided cover as police closed in. By 3pm, they had Sabor surrounded. The events of the next 90 minutes on that bright winter afternoon remain unclear. After calling his phone and getting no answer, police opted against negotiating. They later said that using a megaphone would have given away their location, endangering them. Sabor later said that he was out of ammunition by that point and was lying in the bushes in his bulletproof vest, listening to the birds. Police allege that he opened fire as soon as he saw them. Whatever the truth, the standoff ended in a fusillade of police bullets at about 4.30pm. According to police, two snipers initially aimed shots at a wall in an attempt to make Sabo surrender. The police special intervention group then approached on foot, firing at least 36 rounds. Given the imminent and grave risk to the agent's own physical well-being and the high stress provoked by the situation, the final shots were aimed towards non-vital parts of the aggressor's body, according to a police report. They fired without warning, Sabor claimed later. No one spoke. When officers reached Sabor, he was unconscious, bleeding from at least three gunshot wounds. A helicopter airlifted him to a hospital in Barcelona, 50 miles to the northeast. He has been neutralized, Provincial Police Chief Josep Maria Estela announced to the media. News reports across Spain called Sabor the Rambo of Tarragona and the Securitas gunslinger. Neighbours told reporters he complained incessantly about Securitas, but was otherwise unremarkable and unthreatening. It seemed the story was over. Sabor was expected to face trial and receive a long jail sentence. But only if he survived. In Barcelona, Sabor was stabilized, sedated and moved early the next day to a second hospital where doctors were better equipped to deal with such serious injuries. He had lost a lot of blood. A bullet was buried in one of his shoulder blades and fragments were spread across his shoulder and a leg. He had head and neck fractures, three broken ribs and one of his arms was badly damaged. There was extensive damage to a kidney and to nerves in his spinal cord. A ventilator kept him breathing as he lay in an induced coma. Three weeks later, Sabor recovered consciousness. He was paralysed and in intense pain. Doctors feared that the wounds on one of his legs might lead to an infection, further endangering his life, but Sabor refused to have an amputation. They called his sister Eugenia, who also lived in Alcover, pleading with her to try to change her brother's mind. When she arrived on a chilly day in early January 2022, she found her brother hooked up to tubes and breathing through a hole in his throat. He could barely whisper, she said. Despite her entreaties, Sabor still refused to have his leg amputated. From then on, two or three times a week when Covid restrictions permitted, Eugenia and Mugurel made the 75-minute drive to Barcelona to visit Sabor. I don't know what came over me, he told them, when they asked about the shootings. Eugenia took care of him. She shaved his face and cut his hair. Infections came and went. Operations were performed, inserting pins and plates into arms and shoulders. He finally allowed surgeons to remove his leg on the 23rd of February. 
During these months, the criminal investigation was getting underway. It was overseen by Sonia Zapater, an experienced magistrate who began work on the day of the crime. In Spain, magistrates like Zapater supervise the investigation, prepare charges, and ready the case for trial. At witness hearings, Securitas lawyers appeared intent on protecting the company from any accusations of negligence. At times, it seemed as if Securitas lawyers were actually prosecuting the employees, Rico's outraged lawyer, Ruben Biñuales, told me. Rico said that the lawyers focused on whether she had pressed the panic button, as if she had not done enough to save herself. I hadn't pressed it because you have to wait for a callback. It was better to call police, she said. I sent Securitas a detailed list of questions concerning the criticisms of the company by both Sabor and his victims. In response, I received a short statement that addressed few of them. Securitas praised the courage of our wounded colleagues, thanked the healthcare workers who treated them, and claimed that it last received a complaint from Sabor, of the kind that happen occasionally in every work context, in 2017. However, his relatives showed me four complaints sent from his email between April and May 2021. Rico was astounded to hear Securitas had claimed otherwise. She told me that such emails were routinely passed on to their senior managers outside Tarragona. At the beginning of March, frustrated with their first lawyers, whom she found inefficient, Eugenia hired a brother and sister team of criminal defence attorneys in Reus. Cherat and Ana Amigo had almost five decades of legal experience between them, but this case was unlike any they had taken before. There was no doubting Sabo's guilt. CCTV footage from the Securitas office showed him waving a gun, clumsily dropping a silencer, pulling the trigger, jumping over the counter and standing over Luisa Rico to shoot her. But what happened next was murkier. The Amigos felt that the police's version of events at the farm did not add up. Why hadn't they tried to negotiate? or to wait out a man who was surrounded. And while a ballistics report on the shootout at the roundabout, with precise details of shell casings, trajectories and impacts, was presented to Zapater, nothing of the kind was ever produced for the shootout in the field. Sabo's family claimed that they had seen medical reports showing that he had been shot nine times, not three. Sabo's protective vest, presumably showing impacts, was missing. One officer even said they didn't know who gave the order to fire, Chirat said. He could not establish how many police bullets had hit Sabor. Despite these unanswered questions, in April 2022, the special intervention officers were decorated for bravery by their superiors. The Catalan police declined to comment for this article. That same month, not long after his 46th birthday, Sabor was transferred to the prison wing of a hospital in Terrassa, just north of Barcelona. The medical crises continued. In early June, Eugenia's phone rang with urgent news. Sabor was in a coma and close to death. Two weeks later, he regained consciousness. Two days after that, the complications started again, and a repeat tracheostomy was performed. For a week or two, he couldn't talk, or we couldn't understand, Mugurel recalled. Eugenia lay awake at night, 
trying to work out what her brother had been trying to tell her. Sabor's only encounter with criminal investigators was a brief video conference on the 11th of July. The witness says he is a paraplegic, that they have amputated his leg. He has 45 stitches in his hand, cannot move his left arm, has had screws inserted and cannot feel his chest, the official record stated. Drugs helped, but the pain was constant. Even touching his forearm or cutting his fingernails provoked jolts of pain. I can't put up with it much longer, he told Eugenia. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. In 1968, a 25-year-old Spanish sailor called Ramón San Pedro dived headfirst off high rocks into water that was too shallow. The accident left him unable to move his limbs, and he spent the rest of his life campaigning for a right to die. San Pedro was relentless, good-natured, and a skillful writer. His account of his life after the accident, Letters from Hell, became a bestseller and later inspired the Oscar-winning film 
the scene sighed. On the 12th of January 1998, when San Pedro sipped some potassium cyanide prepared by his friend Ramona Manedo, he filmed himself and repeated his call for a euthanasia law. When I drink this, I will have renounced the most humiliating of slaveries, being a live head stuck to a dead body, he said, before taking the poison. Only years later did Manero admit to her role in her friend's death, when the statute of limitations meant she could no longer be prosecuted. I did it for love, she said. Discreet, unsanctioned euthanasia, understood as mercy killing, has always existed, the Belgian philosopher Willem Lemens told me, but it often placed doctors who performed it in legal jeopardy. In 2002, the Netherlands became the first country in the world to implement a national euthanasia law. In June 2021, Spain became the fourth country to follow suit, after Belgium, Luxembourg and Canada. According to polls at the time, 87% of Spaniards supported the new law. New Zealand's law came into full effect later in 2021, and euthanasia or assisted suicide laws exist for most Australian states. In Germany and Colombia, courts have declared some forms of euthanasia legal according to interpretations of their national constitutions. Switzerland has allowed assisted suicide, where a patient is given the means to end their own life, since 1942. Some US states also allow this for terminally ill people. The new euthanasia laws don't so much give rights to the patients as to the doctors who perform euthanasia, Lemons said. The process is subject to strict oversight, but places great power in medical hands. The euthanasia right is really the right that doctors have to perform it without fear of prosecution, agrees the American bioethicist Scott Kim. It's legally justified as an exception to usual medical practice, in the sense that doctors have an obligation to relieve suffering, but also to prolong life. The Dutch view is that when those duties conflict, you can't blame a doctor if they choose one or the other. Spain's euthanasia law is so recent that challenges are still going through the constitutional court. In some countries, euthanasia laws cover release from incurable suffering, including psychological pain. Spain is among the most liberal regimes, allowing doctors to end life in order to relieve non-terminal suffering. When the far-right Vox Party lodged a challenge on the 16th of June 2021, party leader Santiago Abascal described the law as a victory for the cult of death. More moderate complaints being considered by the court hold that the law is poorly written and open to abuse. Even critics of the new law had not imagined that a case like that of Sabor would be among the first to provoke public concern about its use. On the 20th of June 2022, Spain's biggest radio station broke the news that Sabor had requested euthanasia. As in all such cases, he had to make two written requests, 15 days apart, and await the decision of doctors on whether his condition fitted the law's concept of unbearable suffering that cannot be acceptably relieved. His wish was granted, and a date set for the 28th of July. There was, however, an obvious problem. 
Sabo had shot four people, but no trial had been held. The criminal investigation had been so slow that formal charges had not even been brought. Sabo's victims, all of whom had survived, were outraged. They felt that if Sabo died before he was put on trial, justice could not be done. Their suffering and dignity must be taken into account, argued José Antonio Bitos, the lawyer for the injured police officer. In this unprecedented clash, the right of a person experiencing unbearable and irremediable pain to end their own life was pitted against the right of victims to see their attacker face justice. Two decades of legal euthanasia had never generated anything like it. Lemons told me that in many places euthanasia laws had gone so far beyond the limited way in which they first proposed, essentially as a means of providing a good death to terminally ill people, that he was not surprised by the Sabo case or the outrage it provoked. By avoiding trial, Sabo was, in effect, permitted to opt out of our moral community, he said. The idea that someone can choose to step outside that is very threatening. It fell to Zapater to weigh the conflicting demands of Sabo and his victims. In her view, the answer was, from a legal perspective, straightforward. The law defined euthanasia as a medical issue, which meant that she had no legal grounds to override the decision of Sabo and his doctors. In her written response, Zapater recognized that prioritizing Sabo's decision to end his life would inflict emotional damage on victims and slow the financial compensation process. As there would be no trial, the victims would have to start a separate civil process to claim compensation. Even so, she declared, in the conflict of rights, those conferred by the euthanasia law clearly win. Yet on the 20th of July, in response to complaints from Rico and other victims, a judge in Tarragona suspended the euthanasia procedure. Rico told me that she wanted to stare into Sabo's face in court, see him publicly declared guilty and sentenced to punishment. She did not mind if he was euthanized after that, but needed recognition that what Sabo had done to her was wicked and deserved public scorn. We don't want to prevent it. We just want a trial first, Bitos agreed. Rather than defending Sabo, as they had initially expected to do, the Amigo siblings found themselves demanding his death. After 25 years, I thought I'd seen it all, Anna told me as we drove back to Reus in her mini from Terrassa. This is one of those days when you realise you haven't. She had just listened to Sabo serenely explain why he wanted to die. In mid-July, Cherat Amigo introduced me to Eugenia and Mugurel. They were Sabo's only support. Eugenia, with her dark hair dyed blonde and an embroidered summer blouse, was tearful. Mugurel, a muscular man with a dense black beard, who is a varnisher and painter by trade, did much of the talking. They were a team, wearing matching wooden crosses on leather strings and occasionally completing each other's sentences. They were sorry for Sabao's violence, relieved he had not killed anyone, and angry at Securitas. Above all, Eugenia wanted her brother freed from pain. In early August, an appeal court in Tarragona overturned the suspension of the euthanasia procedure. The panel of three judges supported Zapater's view that the 
right to human dignity of someone in unbearable pain outweighs the right to judicial care of victims. Vitos took the challenge to the Constitutional Tribunal in Madrid, which threw it out on the 12th of August. It seemed Sabo's wish would be granted. All this came as Catalonia marked the fifth anniversary of terror attacks in which Islamist radicals ran down pedestrians with a van and stabbed people to death on Barcelona's Ramblas Boulevard and at the Cambrils Beach near Tarragona, killing 17 people. In that case, police shot dead six terrorists, some of whom were wearing fake suicide vests. I'm not stupid like them, Sabot had said in his email. If I do something crazy, I'll do it properly. Reflecting on the implications of the Sabot case in the newspaper Ideal, Claudio Hernández Cueto, a medical law expert, wrote, Imagine the reaction if one of the Ramblas attackers had been severely wounded and allowed euthanasia. Would the courts, he wondered, have delivered on their dream of martyrdom? Legally, the answer now seemed to be yes. In mid-August, as the day of his death approached, Sabur agreed to speak to me on the record. Prison authorities and Zapater intervened, restricting visits to family only and banning recording devices. A week before he was due to die, Gerard Amigo asked Zapater to release Sabo on bail. In practice, this meant wheeling his bed down a corridor into a ward without guards where Eugenia could accompany him. Zapater refused on the improbable grounds that someone might help him escape. Besides, Zapater added, Sabo had not shown public remorse or asked forgiveness of his victims and seemed unwilling to accept he had done anything wrong. Eugenia believed he was fully repentant, even if he had not said so in public. Nor has anyone apologised for the things that happened to him, she added. Three days before Sabot died, prison authorities relaxed family visiting rules so that either Eugenia or Mugurel could be there day and night. The one who was not with him slept in their Toyota Auris hatchback in the car park. They felt obliged to pretend that nothing tragic was happening. There were tears, but also laughter, as Sabot insisted his bad luck had finally turned, that it was a privilege to be able to die and stop suffering. He did not want to show sadness for our sake, Mugurel said. On the 22nd of August, with Sabot set to die the following day, Ana Amigo and I drove to Terrassa. I was not allowed into the two-story prison wing, but Anna scribbled down Sabor's words on a legal pad, and he signed it. It was the closest thing to a final testament. Sabor spoke for a long time, Amigo said. He repeated his claim that the police had lied about the shootout by the farm. He said he felt most regret about shooting Hernández, the man who tackled him. He cried only once when asked about dying. What future do I have? I can't describe the pain, he said. Otherwise, Sabor was remarkably upbeat, insisting death was a welcome release. He had recently learnt that he could donate his organs. As macabre as it sounds, organ donations from those dying from euthanasia are ideal, 
since the task of prepping patients and delivering organs in good, fresh condition is made easier. By dying, he would be saving lives. That felt virtuous. I'm a good man, Sabo told Amigo. I'm ready. I'm very happy. On the morning of the 23rd of August, a clutch of journalists, myself included, gathered at the 12-storey concrete hospital in the rolling countryside outside Terrassa. By then, the case had become international news. As I waited in the hospital cafeteria, I listened to the lawyers from both sides being interviewed on the radio as news stations covered the final stage of this long-running drama. During one interview, Cherat Amigo floated the idea of suing police for shooting Sabo. I called Bitos. If that is what they want, they should stop him from dying right now, he snorted. The case would be shelved after Sabo's death, he explained. There was no other suspect to investigate. It seemed that the question around the police's handling of the incident would be shelved too. Eugenia and Mugurel spent the morning with Sabo as hospital staff bustled around. Again, he insisted on maintaining a happy, even jokey disposition. Come on, let's go, Sabo urged the doctors. They tried to match his mood, but Mugurel's account suggested there was a surreal, forced edge to it all. At 2.30pm, doctors told Eugenia and Mugurel that it was time. They said goodbye, held back tears, and watched as the sedative was delivered. A hold-up in the complex set of medical procedures necessary when euthanasia is combined with organ donation meant it wasn't until four hours later that Mugurel returned to watch, alongside doctors, nurses and police in medical gowns, as the lethal drug was applied. Later that evening, Anna Amigo called me to say Sabo had died at 6.30pm. Ambulances stood nearby, waiting to transport some of Sabo's organs to operating theatres with prepped recipients in other hospitals. Eugenia and Mugurel waited into the night as his body was removed by an undertaker, smartened up for an open casket ceremony, and then taken to the crematorium to be incinerated two days later. At 11pm, a doctor phoned to tell them the transplants had been a success. They said he had saved five lives, and there would be more, that we could feel proud, Eugenia said. When I visited Eugenia and Mugurel in Alcober three weeks later, they were struggling to make sense of it all. We were concentrating so hard on the fight to end his pain that we hadn't thought what it would be like. In a way, it was a victory, but it's also the loss of a loved one, Mugurel said. We sat in the living room of their bright, tidy apartment in Alcober and watched a video Sabo had left behind. Eugenia served sponge cake and juice as her brother's face appeared on the screen. He sat at a table with his short dark hair slicked neatly to one side, wearing a grey Securitas zip-up fleece and a fluorescent orange vest with a badge saying, Security Guard. Over 18 minutes, he delivered the now familiar narrative of persecution, larded with paranoia. Eugenia sighed. For big companies, workers are just numbers, she said. Someone should have listened. There were many cries for help. 
She and her husband did not condone her brother's violence, but remembered a man with a huge heart. His ashes sat in a brushed metal urn on their bookshelf. They had brought hollow necklace pendants to fill with ash. We don't want to whitewash his reputation, Mugarel said. Everybody knows the facts. They just wanted people to know Sabor was not always like this, that something had happened to him. A few days earlier, I had visited Luisa Rico at a Mediterranean beach campsite south of Tarragona, where she was trying to recover from injury and trauma. After the initial operations to stem internal bleeding, stitch up her bladder and fix hip bones, Rico still walked with a crutch and was awaiting further surgery to pin her hips into place. Her boss, Maestro, had suffered a stroke and now has serious heart and kidney problems, while also struggling with acute anxiety. The other two victims were recovering from lesser wounds. Bitos was not sure the police officer would ever return to active duty. Before the attack, Rico had been fearless, said her husband Jaime. Now her self-confidence was shattered. Small things would trigger her. The sound of cars passing by, people shouting in the street, the sight of her scars, or just someone coming up close behind her. She constantly replays the moment when Sabor stood over her with his gun. I thought I wasn't going to escape, that he would kill me. I couldn't do anything at all, she said. There are bad days and less bad days. The day Sabor died was one of the worst. We all know that when you break the law, there is reaction and punishment. All we wanted was justice to see him declared guilty, she said. You try to do everything right in life, then someone suddenly decides to destroy your life. He has stopped suffering, but we are still suffering. She still sees his face in the shadows, she told me, her eyes filling with tears. His death has not changed that. It feels like he's got off completely free. That was, Can a Mass Shooter Demand a Good Death? The Strange Case That Tested the Limits of Justice by Giles Tremlett Read by Luis Soto and produced by Jessica Beck The executive producer was Ellie Bury. For more Guardian Long Reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash longread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.